This podcast brought to you by ACES, the American Society of Information Science and Technology, the Society for Information Professionals, by the IA Summit, the premier gathering place for information architects and other user experience professionals, by Boxes and Arrows. Visit boxesnarrows.com slash about slash participate to be a part of your peer-written journal. And special thanks to Axure and Morin for sponsoring Boxes and Arrows, as well as the many other sponsors of the IA Summit. Insight is what drives the big idea, validates the crazy hunch, and frames both problem and solution in one fell swoop. Without the right perspective, knowledge, and grounding, generating insight can be unpredictable, wildly unreliable, and completely inconsistent in application. Principal and Design Director with Normative Matthew Milan helps his audience understand how to generate, identify, frame, and use insight effectively. As an information architect, Matthew believes that insight is one of the best tools we can use to unpack difficult challenges and turn them into effective solutions. I hope everyone enjoys the podcast. Cheers. Thanks, everybody, for coming out and uh, coming to the summit and getting up so early. How many people were partying till 3 or 4 a.m. last night? Just a few of you? Just two. Just two. Well, that's not what the tweet said, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah. Um, this uh, presentation is called Leading with Insight, uh, and this is not the first time uh, I have given it. This was originally actually not for folks like you. This was for executives at Citigroup, um, and uh, it was designed to help them understand uh, how to lead their teams uh, in an insightful way. Um, but what it actually turned out to be was a good way of thinking at a high level around how to be insightful in general. So uh, it's kind of fun, it's kind of interesting, there may be a few valuable things in here, um, but it's not so heavy duty that you have to take notes. So I'm going to talk about three things today, uh, insight, being insightful, and leading with insight. A lot of times people don't know what they want until you show it to them. Anyone know who said this? This is uh, our friend Steve Jobs. Uh, people don't know what they want. How about this one? Recognizing the need is the primary condition of design. Another designer, Charles Eames, you're probably familiar with this furniture. This is recognizing the need, uh, such as the need for the projector to hit the field of view. Um, <laughs> uh, bygones. <laughs> Design works if it's authentic, inspired, has a clear point of view. It can't be a collection of input, which is really important. Ron Johnson, does anyone know who Ron Johnson is? Um, used to be head of retail at Target, now he's head of retail at Apple. Um, and it's this type of thinking, the understanding that you need a clear point of view that is important for creating uh, great experiences. So you can have lots of information, lots of research, but being insightful is not having a collection of input. There's something else to it. Um, and we have to ask, why is insight so important? Well, I went back to Britannica uh, to start, uh, and this is interesting. Insight occurs when people recognize relationships. That's important. Or make associations between objects and stuff that can help them solve new problems. So it's about relationships, recognizing relationships and solving problems. Webster's is kind of similar, but they say it's actually the uh, act or result of apprehending the inner nature of something and seeing it intuitively. Uh, so there's a little bit more of an emotional a bent to this. It's really about getting inside something and understanding how it works so you have a better perspective. 
I prefer to think of insights as uh, recognizable truths um, and things that help you understand the real nature of problems. So let's talk about being insightful. Uh, to be insightful, uh, you need to embrace the following. You need to ask thoughtful questions. You need to look beyond the obvious. You shouldn't be afraid to reframe the problem. I know that's tough on a Sunday morning, but uh, this is pretty critical. Uh, and finally, you need to learn to trust your gut. Um, we increasingly, uh, as a practice, information architects, user experience folks, we're very data-driven, that's very good. But we also have to understand that there's some value in trusting your gut, trusting what's going on behind the scenes. So, uh, who, do I, who did I learn this from? Uh, who taught me uh, how to be insightful? Because I think it's important to understand how you learn these things. Does anyone know who this is? Okay, we got, I bet you, Feynman? Richard Feynman. Uh, this is Richard Feynman. I did not learn how to be insightful from Richard Feynman. This is who taught me to be insightful. What's that? Not Peter Falk, Colombo. Um, but Peter Falk, uh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, not so much these days, but great career. So Colombo taught me everything I need to know about being insightful, about being a detective, about uncovering things. But I want to go back to Feynman for a minute and talk about why uh, he is a really insightful person, but not the model that we want to look to. Karl Popper uh, talked about the Wizard Merlin perspective of insight in some of his work. Um, and in Feynman's epitaph, uh, I think it was in the New York Times, uh, he was called a magician of the highest caliber. I mean, this is the Wizard Merlin perspective of insight. Somebody like this is so brilliant that he can come up with a new method like Feynman diagrams or Feynman diagrams. Um, just like that to solve complex problems, right? Brilliant. Very few of us will ever come close to being as smart as somebody like this. And fundamentally, the way that their brain generates insight is very different from ours. Michael Posner uh, has a different perspective. Uh, he talks about another way of being insightful, the prepared mind. And I think this is the one that we want to look closely at. So this is Columbo, you know? He's always going around, ah, I'm just a pest. I'm just trying to do my job. He's the prepared mind. He's the model we actually want to look at as we're starting to understand how we go beyond just collecting information to actually bringing value out of it. So there's no magic. There's preparation, incubation, illumination, and verification. This is all very simple stuff, but it's very easy to forget how to do this. And so we'll look to Colombo for some really good examples. So the prepared mind has a repeatable process. Uh, and I think this is really, really important. Repeatable. Um, repeatable to the point uh, that it almost uh, becomes part of how you operate on a daily basis. It goes beyond your work. So the prepared mind is always running its process. Columbo shows up on the scene. He's already in gear. He's already thinking. He's already looking. He's already evaluating. He's always asking questions. And he's not just asking questions in the obvious places. He's not at the crime scene. He's down the street talking to the family by the swing set who wasn't even there when it happened. He's exploring all the edge cases. This is really critical. And it's good to look at the information we have, whether it's a Forrester report or whether it's primary research we've done or whether it's just some stuff we think we might have a sense of. It's important to look at all of it, not just the stuff that really stands out. Not because we're going to make a decision yet, but because we want to look at it. 
Columbo is always asking these questions. You know, one of the big plot devices is he's leaving, and then he turns around and goes, oh, one more thing, and then he asks that question that really pulls uh, some essence of the problem out. You need to be like that, right? As opposed to asking the questions, and that's it. Always be working through your process. You're always looking beyond what's obvious. This is very easy to talk about. This is very hard to do, and this is very hard to do uh, in real time on top of everything else you're doing. Um, when you're on phone call with a client or peers in another office or something like that, this is not necessarily how we operate, but this is the type of thinking that we have to have going on in the back of our heads. This is how he operates. This is why he's so insightful. You know, and he's always, he's always reframing, and he has a very funny way of doing it. He's like, oh, I don't understand, and then he tries to restate the problem very cleverly looking at it in a different way. So he's not afraid to reframe. And in fact, one of the things that you'll often see in a Columbo episode is him talking through different perspectives over and over and over. He plays with scenarios, you know, verbally or in his mind. Um, I mean, like half a Columbo episode is these pensive faces um, as he's going through different perspectives. You know, and to him, they're, they're important, but none of them are any more important than the others. It's about building that huge pool of data in the back of your head without actually making it conscious or bringing it top of mind. Finally, trust his gut. Um, how many of you have uh, um, made a decision based on your gut in the last week? That's, that's pretty good for IAs. Aren't we supposed to be like by the book and buttoned down and no, this is good to hear. What's that? Go for the ribs, yes. <laughs> I think we've all made that decision a few too many times. That's literally going for the gut. Um, to his gut instinct, you know, he'll often say, oh, I just can't get this out of my head. He doesn't necessarily know why, but he pushes on these things. And this is, this is the perspective we need to bring. So this is cute. This is Columbo, right? But what's really going on here? There's some uh, fairly interesting things going on that, you know, bear a little bit uh, deeper investigation. I won't go too much into them, but there's some things you can dig in more on in the future. So Columbo, and this is important, he's treating insight as a consequence rather than a cause in problem solving. So he gets the insight by solving the problem. He doesn't get the insight and then solves the problem. He's understanding the underlying structure of the problem and then restructuring it to avoid functional fixedness. That basically means He's going through this iterative reframing exercise all the time so he doesn't get trapped in his consistent worldview. This is very easy to talk about, very hard to do because you're under a lot of pressure to do this or this or this. Who's got time to think about something five different ways in five minutes, right? At the same time, um, and this is why every single episode he goes through the same process, he's applying um, representative, uh, he's applying procedural similarity, take advantage of representative transfer, which means the more you do something, the better you get at it. So it's not like he does this once or twice, he's constantly in this state of practice, and his active practice becomes his active problem solving. And then finally, uh, and this is really, really, really important, uh, he's waiting patiently for suddenness of solution. So he doesn't rush it. He doesn't actually um, put an insight down because the client needs one today or because he's got wireframe to do. He lets it come out when it comes out. Even integrating it in later in the process than you might like. 
because you're looking for real insight, something that allows you to really rethink what you're doing, gain a deeper understanding of the problem. You're not just doing this because of time, right? So I know I'm rushing through this a little bit, but um, I'm going to talk now about leading with insight. Um, and this is um, based um, on a bunch of different experiences I've had, uh, including uh, leading a, a team of uh, people in an agency where we had to integrate um, user experience people and account planning people together. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the account planning field, right? So account planning is essentially the advertising industry, brilliant people. Um, they, uh, they about 30, 40 years ago actually this year came up with the idea, you know, we should, we should have people and their only job is to be insightful all the time, right? Um, of course, they turned it into a big black box, so the only way you could be insightful was to go and study with a master, uh, and that meant going to Great Britain and studying with someone from the London School of Planning. Um, and most of the uh, really, uh, really great advertising campaigns that have come out over the last 40 years have um, been in large part because um, a very strong planning practice was prevalent in the agency that did that work. So planning, in a lot of ways, is a black art. They would never tell you the Colombo story because that's giving away their secret sauce, right? But what is important is that this is one of the ways that they provide that extremely senior level leadership with their clients or internally. Um, they understand how to generate insight, how to uh, communicate insight, and how to frame it up so that creative teams can do things with it. Now, we work in a different type of environment. Um, often, as people who are part of a technical team or a creative team, we need to be both the insight generators and the people who do something with the insight. And that's okay. You can totally do that. So what does leading with insight mean for your business? I'm going to tell you a pair of stories about uh, research, culture, and results. Um, both from a place I worked, uh, both um, took place within about uh, 18 months of each, of each other um, and with the exact same team of people. Uh, so it's really uh, a contrast between validation versus inquiry and how you collect research and how you generate insight out of research. So here's a culture of validation. Um, this client had so much money they didn't know what to do with it. Uh, now they trade for about a dollar. Um, <laughs> um, so at one point they spent, it was uh, just on this part, it was over $200,000, uh, focus groups, in-depth interviews, ethnographic field study, generated five personas and loved everywhere, up on the walls and all that stuff, and zero unique insights. No deeper understanding was gained. In fact, the difference between the uh, straw man personas that were done in the first two days of the project um, and the stuff that came out the other end about nine months later, uh, they were about 90% similar, right? So this is a culture of validation. Um, in the end, when all was said and done, second generation of these personas are over a million dollars spent on personas. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's no insight whatsoever. Here's the same team, uh, different perspective. Uh, $1,300 to run a van, um, went to five locations, 24 hours. Those locations were White Castles, um, which was pretty scary. Um, for those of you who haven't been to White Castle, don't go. 
<laughs> Four separate hypotheses in that 24-hour period, three gut checks, um, and then a seven-minute film put together actually to go through the process of continuing the reframe. Two unique, uh, really powerful insights um, that allowed um, strategy and design to be put together that significantly changed uh, the way that the uh, um, customer, the user was understood, including a really interesting one um, where uh, it became very apparent that the behavior of people who go to White Castle and the behavior of people who are addicted to narcotics is almost exactly the same in terms of behavior. Everything, the shame, the guilt, um, the fact that uh, you won't even eat the food there, you know, you grab it, you take off in your car, don't know how many photos we have of people driving out of the drive-thru and the burgers in their mouth, 15 seconds out of the drive-thru, their hands were already off the wheel, right? Very similar, but that type of insight then allowed us to actually go and solve the problem in a meaningful way that actually fit with how people actually did things. It wasn't just people like to eat at White Castle, people love White Castle, but they feel some shame actually being seen there. So what's the moral of this story? Lots of research is a waste of time and money. No, this is not the moral of the story. Actually, when I, when I first time I did this with the execs at this organization, I got so much head nodding, it was not even funny. Oh yeah, and then, yeah, I was not popular after this slide. Um, this is really important, and this is, this is why we're talking about insight and not research. You don't use research to tell you what you already know, you use it to tell you what you don't know. So uh, I'm not knocking syndicated research houses and things like that. If they have information that you don't know, it's good to go to places like that. But you don't go to places like that purely to tell yourself what you already know. That's not good. There's no way you're going to be insightful because essentially you're not adding any new perspective to the mix. So what? What does this mean? Well, insights help you uncover and reframe the true nature of a problem. Um, and they help businesses identify and target positions of differentiation. I'm not talking demographic segments, we're talking about ways of understanding or attacking problems that make their approach different and better, more value. So how do you do this? Well, the simplest way to think about it is you're always going through this iterative reframing to uncover the true nature of the problem. That's Columbo. But leading is some other things uh, as well. I'm going to talk a little bit in the context of an internal uh, program we ran at this place I was working. It was called Spyglass. It was designed to do a whole bunch of different things. But one of them uh, was to actually um, build an uh, insight-driven uh, way of working for the UX and strategy team, which was the same team. Um, and I'm going to talk about a few things just very briefly. Um, these are all like very long conversations um, in and in of themselves. Uh, we'll talk about process. Essentially, you, if you want your team to be insightful, it's not about inserting a chunk of insight process in. It's about switching your entire process to have that overarching Columbo-esque discovery flow in it uh, on top of everything else you do, right? So it's almost like a meta process that you need to actually put on top of your other things. And it, the Colombo process is not sophisticated, it's not difficult, but it's a meta process and that's the type of thinking that then feeds down into everything else you're doing, whether it's specific methods, whether you're creating a deliverable or solving a design problem or having a conversation. This is really important. 
What's even more important though, and this is actually harder for people in large organizations and small organizations, is actually figuring out how to get your resourcing to allow this type of process to happen. Um, that suddenness of solution thing I talked about, where people um, want to jump to the conclusion too early and you want to avoid that, resourcing will guarantee that you are going to be forced to write a report that does not have insight in it or put something in front that does not have insight in it. Basically, what you want to do is you want to actually start, if you're an organization of more than 10 people, you want to start talking to the project managers or the program managers or the project management office or whoever controls this. You want to start having conversations around what it really takes from a resource perspective to be insightful if you're serious about producing more than rubber stamped work, right? This is not easy. Uh, when we went through this, um, about 30% of my time uh, for probably about a four or five month period was spent dealing with resourcing issues on a daily basis. Now this was a team of 25 people in an office of about 150 and a company of about 600, so scale of course, um, but it is that significant. So if you as a UX practitioner or an IA who's leading a team, you wanna get serious about actually figuring out the resource perspective on this, it's like 30% of your time. That's 30% of your time where you're not doing the cool stuff. But this is what's important if you actually want to help your own team or somebody else's team get to the point where they're actually being like Columbo, right? Selling is, is really, really, really important. Um, because when you're selling insight, you're getting into the, uh, that hallowed territory, or you may think have other words for it, that the advertising agencies exist in where they basically bill tons of money for doing nothing sometimes, right? Because they're selling their thinking or they're selling their ability to think like a consultant um, rather than a contractor. Um, and if you want to invest in this and you want to get the value of this and you want to be able to tell the client, well, you're gonna pay us a huge amount of money, not for what we produce, but for the fact that we figured out that people go to White Castle are essentially drug addicts, you know? That's a really good insight. White Castle was freaked out. They said, we thought we were a family restaurant. <laughs> not, not really what's happening. Um, selling is really, really important. And um, I'm gonna do a little bit of snow crash here. So, I'm gonna take a uh, jump back and um, talk about something that will help frame up how you really sell this stuff, both internally and externally. Uh, this is a blog post I had from September 2003. I don't know how many of you have seen that word. This is a word that gets used on the internet all the time, World of Warcraft. Um, unfortunately, I invented it. Um, it gets used by millions of preteens every day when they yell at each other and scream at each other. But the interesting thing about this was I was in graduate school uh, when this happened, so I actually got the chance to kind of track and watch the growth of this. Um, if you go to an Urban Dictionary, there's over 50 definitions now. Uh, there's an FAQ that's been around for years, which originally was supposed to mock people um, and now has turned into something very different. Um, it's fairly popular and it's been interesting uh, to track its growth. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those lolcat things. Um, all over the place. I mean, that one at the bottom says Zong. It's Laguna Beach, but it's LOL Guna. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> I don't even know what this word means. In fact, um, the first time I actually heard somebody speak it to me was about three years after I'd written it in that blog post. Um, I'd never actually used it. I don't even know how to pronounce it, but when it came back to me, someone went blah, 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 zomb, and I went, what, what? There's a point here. This has gone everywhere, um, just like a good meme should. It's gone into physical space, right? Right? I used to own this domain, um, and I let it expire, and now there's a uh, Korean uh, MMO, massive multiplayer game on there, right? Um, but the, the thing that really made me kind of go, wow, um, memes are really, really, really powerful is when Cory Doctorow did a t-shirt. Um, and when he did this t-shirt, he put the word all over it. I was like, there's something here. So as I've been thinking about insight, I've also been thinking about what this has to do with insight and what this has to do with selling insight. And I think I have a crackpot theory. Real insights are memes, right? Real insights are memes. And people will always say to you, they'll go, oh, that's not an insight. Or they'll say, this is an insight. And you go, that's not an insight. But when someone says something to you and it's really insightful, you go, yeah. And the first thing you do is you go tell somebody else. And by the end of the day, the entire office is talking about it. Like six months later, the client is talking about it, right? It's something that reframes in somebody's mind, like a good meme should, a perspective. It switches things. So real insights and how I measure real insights, um, they're memes. They spread like crazy. They're immediately understood. They're self-replicating. So once you get it out in the wild, you don't have to do anything about it anymore. It sells itself. Um, and there's seeds of transformation. So is it a crackpot theory? Um, as someone told me yesterday, they said, you should just tell me. In terms of selling, uh, I think this is really critical to think about whether this is right or just in the ballpark. What's important here is that selling insight is something uh, that you can't do on your own. You're going to have to have other people do it for you, especially when you're dealing with organizations or even dealing with your own teams. You can't go and just tell everybody everything. When, when uh, planners uh, started writing briefs and they'd write the briefs, they'd craft the creative brief certain way with certain language so that the creative team would really get it. Right? And I think that's what's going on, um, is you're crafting your understanding in a certain way so that it sticks in people's minds. Uh, and that's really important. And that's the difference between what I call a finding and an insight. A finding is something in interesting. An insight is something that allows you to see the problem in a different way. And I think it's important to think of insights not only as things, but also as how we communicate them. And this is real leadership when you're actually putting terminology out that hacks the way that organizations communicate about stuff. We can do that stuff too. It doesn't just have to be those um, awful advertising folks. So I think insight should be a key driver of your business thinking. And here's why. Regardless of where you operate, in some way, shape, or form, you're working with a business, even if they're a nonprofit. Good insight and good research with it uh, helps you to know what people need before they know themselves. And when you lead with insight and you put insight forward as, as the first part of your, your contact around problem solving, and you use the process to generate insight as the way to overlay everything you do, um, you create the need, and you get true differentiation. You don't just get fake stuff. You get really 
great understanding on how to differentiate. You get real innovation because you actually understand the transformative nature of the value you're looking for. Um, and you get tangible results. Um, this, is not, uh, this is not something that um, is cool. This is something that changes stuff. And it ladders all the way up, right to, right to you trying to create, uh, create a meme-like thing out of that flash of genius that you had in your head. So I want to finish off by saying that uh, insight is a state of mind. Um, it's being like Columbo all the time. But more importantly, it's also a way of doing business. And when you think about this, um, being insightful in the context that we're in is not about having a cool idea. It's about communicating a great transformative idea in a way that makes you able to do better work. So thank you. Are there any questions for Matthew? Joe. Um, very, very, very cool, man. Thanks. A uh, um, couple of things. Um, <clears throat> you talked about validation. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the role of validation? The, the impression is that it's not good. and I. I don't think that's what you meant. No, of course that, not. That there are times and cultures where validation may be needed and maybe talk about a balance of, very quickly, how that so, helps a business. For sure. So, so obviously trying to be provocative with that statement. But validation is not a bad thing. But most validation you see in organizations is actually CYA. Does anyone know what CYA means? Cover your ass, right? Uh, that is bad. And so there's nothing wrong with you going through validation, but it's very easy um, for, especially when you're starting to do research, especially in the context of doing it for uh, a large internal group with senior stakeholders or an external group or company or something like that. It's very easy, especially if you're dealing with middle to senior middle management. It's very common for them to not have clearly defined metrics or ways of measuring things. And they do that on purpose. And organizations have evolved out to have this soft core in the middle. Um, causes all kinds of problems like financial system collapse and stuff like that. <laughs> but, um, but what you want to do is you want to recognize that validation is okay, but that almost immediately um, people will say, I'm very comfortable with validation. Give me a whole lot because the things I'm being measured on are so weak already. I need something really solid to put in front of people so that I can keep my job and get my bonus and everything else. So what you want to do is you want to go in and you want to start with inquiry and use that inquiry to uncover what you don't know and then validate or not validate the hypotheses you had or the multiple hypotheses you had around what the nature of the problem was. And I think it's, it's looking at it a little more like a true science as opposed to just saying, show a bunch of stuff so we cover our ass, right? Which sadly is the way it works in many cases. Sorry, does that answer your question? That was, yeah, exactly. I like, I like the way you, you framed that. Very quickly, another thing is in insight, you talked about insight uh, looking at it from a meme standpoint and a shared, sort of a shared truth. Mm -hmm. And it, my first reaction was, well, that's opposite because insight is by, def by etymological definition a way of looking inward and looking at something internally, individually, but it's not. It doesn't become an insight 
in a way, it seems, until it's shared somehow. Yeah, it, it can be a personal insight, but that's but that's you'll like never but in the context of business, you'll never do anything with it if it's your own thing. Sonia. Matt, thank you. That was really great. Um, is this on? Okay. So what do you do um, when you provide the insight and it, the business just can't accept it? And for example, White Castle, you tell them addicts, and they say, no, no, we're a family restaurant. No, they're addicts. We are a family restaurant. Mm -hmm. How do you address that? So it really depends on the nature of your relationship with the client. There's probably 50 different answers um, ranging from um, you suck it up because you're trying to win the work or you stick to your guns because you're trying to win the work. Um, it depends on the nature of the power uh, that you're dealing with. Um, sometimes um, you want to um, precede or prepare the ground for months before you actually put this information in front of people. Um, changing the way that a business works through insight, sometimes you don't actually even communicate the insight. Sometimes it's, it's laying the groundwork so that when you put your deliverables or your strategy or your work in front of them, they buy into it. But it's understanding this piece right away. And it's not saying what happens when they do accept it or when they don't accept it. It's saying what kinds of things do I need to do ahead of actually delivering this in whatever form it is to make people say yes, right? So um, the pre-work on this around the selling is huge. And that's one of the th reasons why I think the, uh, the meme part is really important because you um, might want to seed an organization with an idea six months, a year, before you actually put the work in front of them. But throwing out a little thing on the phone and saying, hey, you know that social graph thing? You know, maybe there's a financial graph too. You might want to explore that kind of stuff. They're like, uh, say it about four or five times, leave it alone. If it's a really good idea, you'll start having people parrot it back to you in a couple months, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then by the time you put something in front of them and say, hey, here's a strategy for APIs, they go, oh, yeah, we've been talking about this financial graph stuff. Yeah, this is perfect. But this is, this is why understanding the insight is important so you can start to lay the groundwork to actually make it go through. It's not so much a question of can you or can't you, it's, it's how much preparation do I need to do this in play if I really believe it. And that's very difficult to do, right? But that's why I talk about things like resourcing and process. How much resources, how many resources do you need to start seeding this kind of stuff? Is it two hours a week, five hours a week? Who knows? 100 hours a week? Uh, you, then you, then you. Um, I'm just waking up here. Hey. Hi. I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the resourcing as far as um, the type of flexibility that you need for a project. Like it seems like it'd be very difficult to sort of lock down a schedule and a set amount of resources for a project when you're, you're going for particular hypotheses and then you discover later like, oh, maybe we're on the wrong road. We need to go down this other direction. How do you then, first of all, rectify that? Do you go back and try to renegotiate a different schedule? So, so personally, um, and there's lots of different ways to do this, but personally, actually, um, I like a program and project-based approach to this. Um, not because that ends up getting the resourcing right in the end, because that actually does two things. One, it develops the relationships that you need with the resourcing people. Um, and two, it shows that you understand um, how value and billing flow within the organization you're in so that they don't feel you're just running off on some crazy crusade to do cool stuff with your team. But you're actually saying, hey, 
I need these resources because my project or my program is going to achieve this, and here's the different pieces of value it's going to feed into other things that we're doing. Uh, and then you basically deliver that. And so that spyglass program I talked about, uh, there are measurables, uh, measurable things or metrics. Um, there were specific things that were supposed to change in internal organization, external organizations we're dealing with. There are budgets per week broken down to what this person would be doing on this day and this day and this day. Not that, that it actually played out exactly like that, but putting something like that in front of the folks doing resourcing made them go, hey, they've thought about this. And if I do this and help them out with this, free up those resources, it's probably not going to be wasted. I may not see the value right away, but at least I understand they're thinking the same way I am. But that takes a lot of work. You know? And it, 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 you have to go in and spend some time just understanding how resourcing works in your organization. Very different from what I've seen in different organizations. But that's one of the key nuts to crack around getting a process like this going. And what most people fail to do, they're like, ah, oh, project management sucks. Right? Not the case at all. You don't understand their world any better than they understand yours. Put something together you can both work from. That's the approach I like. There are other approaches as well. Any other questions? <laughs> yes, and how many companies try and transform this into, okay, you have three days to be insightful, four days to do the design, and the development team will start on it Monday? So, yeah, yeah, I, I love that, um, but not for the reason you expect. I'm a huge fan of Charles Eames. His furniture is okay, but, but he, he was one of the people who said, you know, constraints make design work really, really, really well. So when Columbo goes to solve a crime, I'll go back to Columbo, he doesn't say, like, I need two years to solve this. If he's got to solve it by next Tuesday because, you know, something's happening, he deals with the constraints. Um, we should deal with the constraints as well. It's better to run your process in a really tight time frame um, with limited information and really run that process well um, than to get caught up in a battle of trying to push it out. If this is your first engagement with a client, they won't budge on that kind of stuff, do the best you can, but very clearly when you finish up, frame it up in ways that show the value of your thinking because you don't go through this type of thing unless you want to start selling your thinking as opposed to what you are producing. Ideally, you want to get paid for both and very well. So it's not easy, but the, thing, the one thing you don't abandon is the process. The one thing you do deal with is you look at the constraints and say, how do these constraints actually help me solve the problem? Turn the thing that's the biggest challenge into the best challenge. So why did we jump in a van for White Castle? Because we were used to, um, we were used to having you know, tons of money and, and uh, research budgets and time to go figure stuff out. And the, and the client basically said, we need to see something on our desk four or five days, right? How are you going to, we're from Canada. There are no white castles in Canada, right? <laughs> How are we going to figure out what that's like? So we basically piled people into a van and drove down. And some, yeah, it was weird showing up at the border with travel letters that said, this van of six people is, is going to White Castle in three different states. <laughs> We were at the border for about 20 minutes. They did not believe it at all. But that's how you deal with constraints, right? You, you, you work around them. You be as creative as possible while keeping the core of what you do, which is this process of uncovering, reframing, exploring, asking questions. Does that help? We have time for one more. Thank you. 
Hi. I really enjoyed your presentation, and especially part uh, where you compared culture of validation and culture of inquiry was very interesting. Because I work for a uh, university-based usability lab, and we conduct a number of research studies. And when you describe these 40 interviews, five personas, and number of surveys, for example, it is typically what we do for clients. But it was kind of scary to hear that uh, many of these studies might not provide insight. So in academia, when we are studying all these research methods, we try to be, provide very objective knowledge. Yeah. So it is almost like against to use own gut feeling. So I'm just wondering, uh, what is your take on um, what researchers should, how and uh, what researchers do, do need to do to provide insight? Right, in, in academic clients. fields? Pardon? Are you saying what researchers in academic fields yeah. should do? Yeah. Well, actually, I would, I would look at it this, and I may be, I may be uh, vilified for this, or I don't know. There are many different reasons to do research. Um, and this type of research is not academic research. This is, this is research to figure some stuff out and put something in front of people that ideally reinforces or changes behavior so an organization can get some money for it. That's very different from building a platform or, or an understanding of how things work more broadly. So I do believe, um, and having spent some time in academia and not being there anymore, I might tell you some stuff about my perspective, I, I do believe that there is room um, to trust your gut a little bit more. And I think um, um, I know some people who would very much say that that's a big part of science. Um, it doesn't mean you have to abandon what you do. It just means that you have to be a little more open to uh, science being a process of uncovering stuff rather than building big cases for things you already know. Right? Thank you. Does that make sense? All right, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate you coming. To hear even more presentations from the 2009 IA Summit, point your browser to boxnarrows.com and click on the podcast link. There you'll find access to the iTunes feed and more information about each presentation. Our heartfelt thanks to the organizers and sponsors of the 10th Annual IA Summit, the presenters, and of course to the global community. We look forward to feedback about future episodes that will be of greatest value to you, our listeners.